I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. R is for Mick Ronson Part 2. Indeed. So we're now up to Hunky Dory and we've done Hunky Dory, of course. We've covered it in detail on H, but let's get to the Mick Ronson bit. He was a huge influence on the overall sound of the album, even if, instrument-wise at least, it was Rick Wakeman's piano playing that was the anchor for this masterpiece, aided and abetted by Mick's fabulous arrangements. So this is what Woody said. Mick was a very direct player. When he hit a chord, he got it. And when he played a solo, you got a solo. That was one of the abilities he had. It was just so natural to him. He didn't even look on it as anything special. He was very musical. And that's part of the genius of Ronson, isn't it? You know, he had this wonderful, magical talent and he was just so down to earth about it. And his arranging skills, of course, have been sought elsewhere. And this story, as is uh, much of this research that we're doing, comes from the spider with the platinum hair, Rono biography by Weird and Gilly. So this is Trevor Boulder talking. He says, we were all sleeping on the balcony at Haddon Hall. Mick was doing the arrangements for a band called Milkwood, who are an offshoot of the New Seekers. So he'd spend all day writing. On this particular weekend, he had to have them finished on a Sunday night so he could could go down into the studio on the Monday morning and put them down. David's mum was coming in on the Sunday morning and Mick spoke to her on the Saturday night and said, when you come in, can you wake me up? Uh, I've got to get these string arrangements finished. So when she arrived on the Sunday morning, she immediately walked upstairs, start shouting at Mick, wake up, wake up. Mick jumped out of bed screaming, I'm late for the session, I'm late for the session. He must have been dreaming about the work because he thought it was Monday morning. He was stark bollock naked running at David's mum. It was quite a sight. I think I think it scared her to death. Not surprised. <laughs> As already documented, no sooner had Hunky Dory been completed that work on the Ziggy Stardust album started. OK, on to Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Tony DeFries, manager, announced that he freed Bowie from the Mercury Records contract and that the band were now RCA recording artists. OK, so this was a uh, big start of the star trip, wasn't it? Where Tony DeFries just made them act like stars, yeah. treated them like stars, so that other people would think they were stars. Yeah. Very clever. Simple idea, and it worked. Uh, Mick, David and Angie all flew to New York to sign the contract, so this is like they're hitting the big time now. Whilst there, Mick met the likes of Lou Reed and Iggy Pop, who must have seemed as alien to him as Bowie and the Spiders were to their American audiences in the months to come. Yeah, Mick also met one of his idols, Annette Peacock, a synth pioneer and avant-garde jazz artist, who would later turn down a role in the Spiders at Bowie's request but would in turn recommend Mike Garson. Mm. October 1971 Mick and Denise's first child Nicholas was born in Kingston upon Hull Royal Infirmary who being of a similar age became best toddler pals with David and Angie's lad Zowie Bowie Joe Duncan whatever you want to call him. (laughs) 
with Bowie wanting to leave the singer-songwriter aspect of his career behind, despite Hunky Dory only just being finished, the new concept of Ziggy and the Spiders suited the three lads from Hull right down to the ground, you might say. This is where the Spiders really found their identity, isn't it, Mark? Though part of that identity wasn't without its problems. Mick left the band for a day when Bowie insisted that he wear a gold suit. Woody famously chased Rono to the train station and convinced him to uh, come back to the fold. So this is Bob Harris, who knew David for years, actually, and shared a flat with Angie Bowen. It's his uh, take on their chemistry. He said, uh, Mick and David very much played off one another. I thought Mick was vitally important to the way everything sounded. His guitar work and his presence was an integral part of it, and without it, it just wouldn't have worked in the same way. Definitely. You look at the interaction between Bowie and Ronson on the OK Whistle Test as well, don't you? Just captivating, wasn't it? And the way that Ronson doesn't look uncomfortable at this point in time, does he? No, not at all. No. So we move on now to the 16th of June, 1972, which is the release of the Ziggy Stardust album, Ziggy and the Spiders from Mars. Again, there'll be a whole episode dedicated to this. I think we might do that in, oh, Zed, do you think? Quite possibly. As we know, Starman was released from the album as a single and their appearance on the Granada TV show Lift Off with Aisha was a life-changing moment, certainly for you, Mark, because you saw it. But for others, it was the famous Top of the Pops appearance on the 6th of July, 72, that really lit the touch paper. And a large part of what made that performance so fantastic and so memorable and for some shocking weirdly was the relationship between Bowie and Ronson or how it's portrayed on stage both looking amazing and unique great hair and memorably with their arms around each other yeah I mean the funny thing is if you had to tell Mick Ronson the 20 year old Mick Ronson that he would be doing that in a couple of years and acting in that way he, he just wouldn't have had it would he not at all but he went on to become a huge part in the rise of Bowie and Ziggy and he was Bowie's right hand man or left hand man to be specific standing to the left of Bowie on stage right up until Diamond Dogs so it was in that period that Ronson, Woody and Trevor became more distanced from Bowie, being treated increasingly, particularly by manager Tony DeFries, as mere backing musicians. Mm. The last show at Hammersmith Odeon we've discussed, of course, we'll be doing so further. Ditto Rono's last engagement with Bowie in that section of Bowie's career for both uh, pin-ups and the 1980 floor show. Although staying with Bowie for a moment... Yeah, in September 1983, Mick Ronson was a special guest at the Toronto leg of the Serious Moonlight Tour, playing lead guitar during the performance of the Gene Genie. He'd only been asked to play the day before and later recalled... Well, he said, I was playing Earl Slick's guitar. I'd heard Earl play solos all night, so I decided not to play solos. I just went out and thrashed the guitar. I really thrashed the guitar. I was waving the guitar above my head and all sorts of things. It was funny afterwards because David said... You should have seen Earl's face, meaning he looked petrified. I had his prize guitar and I was swinging it round my head and Slick's going, ah, watch me guitar! You know, I was banging into it and it was going round my head. Poor Slick. I mean, I didn't know it was his special guitar. I just thought it was a guitar, a lump of wood with six strings. Has to be said at this point, Mark, it's, uh, he'd had a few. Um, it, I think he was nervous about playing with Bowie again. He'd been introduced to the band beforehand, I think the night before at rehearsal, and they all adored him. I remember talking to Carmine Rojas about this recently. He said it was just, they were all awestruck, because obviously they, they all knew the, the spider stuff and uh, had the uh, Hammersmith Odeon bootlegs and the rest of it. So he, he was this guitar god for everybody. Right, OK. And yeah, I mean, we know he's shy and humble and all that kind of stuff. And also you can imagine playing to what would have been a ginormous... Yeah. Right, well, I mean, p- quite possibly the biggest audience of his career, uh, you know, his Wembley aside and all that. Mm. Uh, Bowie said in 1994, Mick was a perfect foil for the Ziggy character. He was very much a salt of the earth type, the blunt northerner with a defiantly masculine personality. So what you got was the old-fashioned yin and yang thing. As a rock duo, I thought we were every bit as good as Mick and Keith or Axel and Slash. Ziggy and Mick were the personification of that rock and roll dualism. Yeah, and as we know, of course, Bowie referred to Ronson as his Jeff Beck, didn't he? He did. So we're going to move on now to his solo and production work. Yeah, we're looking 
working at Slaughter on 10th Avenue with debut solo album, 1974. For inspiration, Ronson relied on Annette Peacock's 1972 album, I'm the One. He used a title track for her arrangement of Elvis Presley's Love Me Tender. Two songs were co-written by Ronson with Scott Richardson, who'd uh, been involved in the Ann Arbor music scene since the mid-60s and came to prominence as lead singer of the SRC. Richardson was brought into the Bowie camp by Angie Bowie. had met him through Ron Ashton, actually, of the Stooges. Right. During the recording of the album, Ronson considered putting together a new band with Richardson, Ainsley Dunbar and Trevor Boulder to be called The Fallen Angels, but plans fell through. Yeah, just to mention the fact that obviously Woody isn't in the frame here, but Woody wasn't having any of it with their pin-ups and the 1984 show, was he? So that's why he wasn't in there. Uh, Promotion and live shows, Mick Ronson's debut concert came at the Rainbow Theatre London with a pair of shows on the 22nd and 23rd of February 1974. His band consisted of Mark Carr Pritchard on second guitar, Trevor Boulder on bass, Mike Garson on keyboards and Richie Dharma on drums. Did Richie Dharma also play with Alice Cooper at some point? Uh, maybe? Possibly. Oh. Uh, the band were augmented by Thunder Thighs on vocals, a five-piece horn section and the London Symphony Orchestra. This was followed by a 13-date tour in April 1974 without the orchestra. So that would have been the band you saw, right? With Mick yeah. Mick Garson, I, do right? you know what? I didn't even know he had the orchestra involved right. at, at the Rainbow and the Rainbow shows were famous, but I'd never heard that before. Yeah, that's great. So we uh, just flick through the track list in here. The album starts with Love Me Tender. Growing Up and I'm Fine. Only After Dark. Music is Lethal. I'm the One. Pleasure Man, Hey Margaret Papa. And of course, Slaughter on 10th Avenue. The Personnel, Mick Ronson. Trevor Boulder. Ainsley Dunbar. Mike Garson. David Henschel. Maggie Ronson. Dennis McKay. Sidney Sachs. Lee Black Childers, who took the photograph of the cover. He did indeed. He did. So move on to Mott the Hoople now. So between this and the 1975 follow-up, Ronson had a short-lived stint with Mott the Hoople, playing only on the brilliant swan song single, Saturday Gigs. So the story goes that Hunter aside, obviously, there was a lot of jealousy towards Mick Ronson from the other band members who saw him getting the star treatment from the management company, Main Man, who probably saw the association as a distraction from the job of trying to turn Mick Ronson into into a big earning heartthrob rock star in his own right, like a, a new David Bowie almost. Yeah, he then became a long-time collaborator with Mott's former leader, Ian Hunter, commencing with the album Ian Hunter, which got to number 21 in the UK, and featuring the uh, single Once Bitten, Twice Shy, including a spell touring as a Hunter-Ronson band. Yeah, which is what the uh, tour that I mentioned before. So on to his uh, second album now, Play Don't Worry, and it was released in the January of 1975, uh, after several projects in the early 70s together with David Bowie, Lou Reed and the band The Spy from Mars, he was trying once again to become a pop star in his own right. He was. It contains mainly covers arranged by Ronson for his own sound, covering everybody from Pure Prairie League, The Velvet Underground and Little Richard. The backing track to White Light, White Heat was salvaged from Bowie's pin-up sessions. The title track, meanwhile, was co-written by Bob Sargent, later producer to The Beat, amongst others, who released an album called First Starring Role in April 74, which included Ronson on recorder and also producing four tunes. Yeah, and uh, Bob Sargent, he, he actually produced the first four album. Oh, did he? I didn't know that. I Live should know that. The, Live at the Witch Trials. Ah. He did, yeah. Okay. So, uh, Heaven and Hull, let's move on then, Bob, was a final solo album by Mick Ronson, released in 1994, following Ronson's death the previous year. It featured collaborations by longtime friends of Ronson, including David Bowie, Joe Elliott, and Ian Hunter. Other artists included Peter Noon, Martin Chambers and Chrissy Hine, Pretenders, Phil Collin, and John Mellencamp. Uh, the All the Young Dudes track on Heaven and Hull is from the Freddie Mercury tribute gig, where Ronson himself was suffering from 
cancer. He appears very thin on the DVD while also playing uh, some blistering guitar, and it was his last concert, sadly. It was. Okay, so beside Bowie and Hunter, Ronson went on to work as a musician, songwriter and record producer with many other acts. He didn't restrict his influence behind the recording desk just to established acts. His production work appears on albums by more obscure artists such as Paolas, Phil Rambo and Lost Illegals, The Mundanes and an Italian band called Moda. Lou Reed and Transformer, Bob? Yes, OK, so Transformer, second solo studio album by Lou Reed. It's considered a landmark of the glam rock genre, anchored by Reed's most successful single, Walk on the Wild Side, which touched on controversial topics like sexual orientation and drugs. Produced by David Bowie and arranged by Mick Ronson, and released in November 1972 on RCA. So, production here. Transformers produced by David Bowie and Mick Ronson, both of whom have been strongly influenced by Reed's work with the Velvet Underground. Mick Ronson, who was at the time lead guitar with Bowie's band, The Spiders from Mars, played a major role in the recording of the album at Trident Studios, serving as co-producer and primary session musician, contributing guitar, piano, recorder and backing vocals, as well as arranger, notably contributing the string arrangement for Perfect Day. Reed himself lauded Ronson's contribution in the Transformer episode of the documentary series Classic Albums, praising the beauty of his work and keeping down the vocal to highlight the strings. Songs on the album are now amongst Reed's best-known works, including, as we mentioned, Walk on the Wild Side, Perfect Day, and Satellite of Love. I mean, the, oh, the arrangement on that is just something else. It's Sublime. spectacular. And the album's commercial success elevated him from cult status to become an international star. So, as you can imagine, lots of people... He was in demand, wasn't he? He was a gun for hire, Mick He Ronson. was, yeah. So he, he also worked on the Elton John album, didn't he? Tumbleweed Connection. Yeah, as we mentioned. Bob Dylan called Rono the English guitarist on the uh, Rolling Thunder review of 75. And he can be seen in the band, both on and off stage in the film of the tour. And he made a connection with Roger McGuinn at this point, which led to his producing and playing guitar and doing the arrangements on McGuinn's solo album, Cardiff Rose, which came out in 76. I did talk to McGuinn briefly a few years ago about this and they got on like a house on fire. Both two sort of quite subdued characters, but obviously they really hit it off and they would share a room and the rest of it. They just kind of charge around the hotel, I think with McGuinn pushing Ronson in a wheelchair and just doing really daft stuff. It did get quite heavy and sometimes, because of the nature of that tour with Dylan, you weren't quite sure whether you'd be on stage with him that night, because it was supposed to be like an old carnival thing, wasn't it, with a different acts every night so it was just like loads of blokes on the road having fun yeah and that was the thing you'd just get the nod and then come on wouldn't you it was like yeah. a, a tag team almost yes. but uh, and that was the thing we'd say hey won't give me the English guitarist <laughs> uh, Roger Daltrey hired Ronson on his 1977 solo release One of the Boys and in 1979 Ronson and Hunter produced and played on the Ellen Foley debut album Night Out in 1982, Ronson worked with John Mellencamp on his American Fool album, and in particular the song Jack and Diane, which is a whopper, wasn't it? It was a whopper. This is a quote from Mellencamp from Classic Rock in 2008. He says, uh, I owe Mick Ronson the hit song Jack and Diane. Mick was very instrumental in helping me arrange that tune as I'd thrown it on the junk heap. Ronson came down and played on three or four tracks and worked on the American Fool record for four or five weeks. I used to call him John Mellencougarcamp. Did you really? Oh, yeah. well, he should be known like that. <laughs> but I, not I, to I, his face. Uh, but uh, he was a main man recording Artiste. He was. He was on the main man roster, wasn't he? Mm. So uh, anyway, he continued. All of a sudden, for Jack and Diane, Mick said, Johnny, you should put Baby Rattles on there. I thought, what the fuck does <laughs> put Baby Rattles on the record mean? So he put the percussion on there, and then he sang the part Let It Rock, Let It Roll, as a choirish type thing, which had never occurred to me, and that is a part everybody remembers of the song. It was Ronson's idea. So I didn't know that. That no. is brilliant. Both Jack and Diane and American Fool topped their respective US Billboard charts. Mick Ronson was recruited to Mid-Jaws Band, 
band for the Yours Gift Tour in 1985. After weeks of rehearsal, Ronson left the band due to financial disagreements and was replaced by Zal Clemenson of the sensational Alex yeah. Army Band. In 1990, Ronson again collaborated with Ian Hunter on the album You Are Yorda, which this time getting joint credit as Hunter Ronson. You Are Yorda. Uh, in 1993, he again appeared on a Bowie album, Black Tie, White Noise, playing on a version of Cream's I Feel Free. And we have covered that in B, haven't we? Mm. In 1991, Ronson produced the Swedish cult band, the Leather Nuns album, Nun Permanent, adding backing vocals and guitar overdubs on several tracks. At the end of production, during a short visit to his sister in London, uh, Ronson was diagnosed with cancer. Yeah, in 1992, he produced Morris's album, Your Arsenal. The same year, Ronson's final high-profile live performance was his appearance at the Freddie Mercury tribute concert. Yeah, that's where he played on All the Young Dudes with Bowie and Hunter and Heroes with Bowie, and Ronson's final recorded session was as a guest on the 1993 Wild Hearts album, Earth vs. the Wild Hearts, where he played the guitar solo on My Baby is a Head Fuck. Okay, so his personal life. Mick had two uh, younger siblings, Maggie and David. He was married to Suzanne Fussy, a hairdresser who worked for David Bowie at the same time that Ronson did. They had a daughter, Lisa. Hi, Lisa. A former vocalist with The Secret History. Uh, Ronson had two sons, Nicholas, born 1971 with his girlfriend Denise, as well as Joachim, born 1990 with Carola Westerlund. Mick Ronson died of liver cancer on the 29th of April 1993, aged just 46. On the 6th of May, his funeral was held in a Mormon chapel in London as he had been raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In his memory, the Mick Ronson Memorial Stage was constructed in Queen's Gardens Hull. In 2015, Steve Harley pledged to help raise funds for a new memorial to his late friends. In April 2016, Harley played for free at the Hull City Hall to help kickstart the appeal. Yeah, that's the one I went to, actually. So a new eight-foot guitar sculpture, Memorial to Ronson, designed by student Janice Skodins, was unveiled on the 2nd of June 2017 in Hull's East Park, where Ronson used to work as a gardener. As part of the whole 2017 City of Culture event programme, a show entitled Turn and Face the Strange was created to tell Ronson's story, comprising audio recordings of people who grew up with him in Hull. Yeah, uh, so the show also featured friends and family, video, live narration and songs performed by a live rock band which included X-Rats bass player Keith Ched Cheeseman on guitar, Hull-born John Bentley from Squeeze and a friend of Ronson's on bass, plus John Cambridge, the X-Rats and hype drummer who introduced Ronson to Bowie on drums. Yeah, in August 2017 there were six sellout performances at the Freedom Centre on Preston Road, close to where Ronson had grown up and is buried. There was a second run of the show at the larger... Hull Truck Theatre, which played to another six seller audiences in February 2018. Actually, I have had a back and forth with the people behind uh, the, this actual event, and it's going to happen again oh, uh, is it? in 2019. And oh, I'm, right. I'm, I'm definitely hoping to go to yeah. that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. So this piece now is from Classic Rock, uh, which is referring to the last time that Ronson shared a stage with Bowie in his time as a sidekick, namely the 1980 Floor Show. Okay, so in quotations there, the two men wouldn't appear on the same stage together again until 1983 when they reunited for a song at a show in Canada on Bowie's Serious Moonlight Tour. It goes on, in between there'd been a spat in 1976 at the height of his cocaine addiction, Bowie washed his hands of the good old days. I gave them, his band, the Spiders from Mars, uh, more life than I intended, he said, and I was also getting honestly bored. There's only so much you can do with that kind of band. I wanted no more to do with that loud thing. Hurt my ears. Wasn't pleasing my mind too much either. Since then, Paul Mick has completely missed his vocation from his faulty solo career right on down. I've been disappointed. It could have been amazing. I just don't know. Christ, I haven't spoken properly with him in years. I wonder if he's changed. This is really sad to hear, isn't it? Yeah, It really is. Evidently, Bowie's cage was rattled by Ronson's comment. David needs someone around him to say, fuck off, you're stupid. He needs one person who won't bow to him. Bowie's reply was, I've got God. Who's Mick got? So this was a spot which I I wasn't aware of. Yeah, uh, there was certainly a time when David relied on Mick, says singer Dana Gillespie, a fellow main man artist and mutual friend, but he'd drop all communication with you. Mick was badly hurt when David never returned his phone calls. In fairness, Bowie became more charitable later, which we we know they they reconciled, didn't they? Yeah, they did. So this is from the same article. Uh, Benny Marshall was the Rat's lead singer and a close friend of Ronson. Mick was the best guitarist in Hull, he says. So when he left to head down south and join Bowie, I was pretty upset. John Cambridge, our drummer, had played with Bowie on the album Space Oddity. He was a bloke who went back to Hull in January 1973 with a brief to find Ronson and bring him to London. He found Mick marking out lines on the municipal football pitch. Cambridge did as instructed, and as we know, he introduced Bowie to Ronson in February 1970. Yeah, and they went off to do the uh, Paris Theatre show, didn't yeah. they? And just a couple of rehearsals, barely knew each other and all that kind of stuff. But it went down really well. Yeah, reaction was indeed positive. This was better than Bowie's regular gig at the Three Tons in Beckenham. Ronson moved into Bowie's Haddon Hall apartment on South End Road in Beckenham and became part of the family. Having tired of the hippie collectivism, Bowie wanted to make a hard rock album. As Visconti said later, we respected groups like Cream, but we didn't have that in us. We needed someone to be that important element. And that somebody was Mick Ronson. It most certainly was. Everyone loved Ronson's laconic northern humour too, especially Bowie whose father and mother came from Yorkshire and Lancashire respectively. He'd send Ronson up and get just as good back. Uh, Visconti noticed his pupil's keen interest. He floored us, he said. When David and I met him, we knew he'd fit in looks-wise, but we had no idea what was coming until he picked up his Les Paul and played for us. He really didn't have to be taught the few songs we'd already worked up with John Cambridge. Mick watched our hands on the guitar and bass necks and he just knew what to play, but he didn't say 
say much. We just thought he was cool, a silent type. Later we found out that our apartment in Beckenham was the very big time for him and he was simply overwhelmed. Now this is interesting, mate. Again from the same article, Tony Visconti insists that Ronson came to Trident Studio in September 1969 when the David Bowie album was being finalised. He says uh, Mick came to the mix of Wild Eyed Boy from Free Cloud and was persuaded to play a little guitar line in the middle part and joined in on the hand claps in the same section. You see, I didn't know That's that. That's news. Wow. And it continues, if he did, he isn't credited. Ronald's first recorded work with Bowie was on the remade and rocked out single Memory of a Free Festival Part 1, Part 2, recorded in September 1969 and released in June 1970. It bombed. It did. So we get to the various tributes and the memorial concerts, of course. We know that Ian Hunter loved Mick Ronson like a brother and he wrote the uh, amazing song Michael Picasso dedicated to uh, Ronson, didn't he? Hunter arrived in London from the United States to record his track the day before his friend died. He said to me that night, I love to tour because you just get better as a musician. Mick's thing was always about working and improving, not about making lots of money. His work was of great quality and will stand up long after a lot of people who are flashier players will be forgotten. On a personal level, he was so kind and full of life. Yeah, you can tell the love between them. I think there was a section, a part of their uh, respective lives, where they weren't really in touch so much. Mm. When you see Ian Hunter performing live, and he does Michael Picasso, you can tell that they were just real brothers, you know, and they loved each other dearly. The A to Z of David Bowie, with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. All right, so there you go. In two parts, we've uh, looked at the life of the wonderful Mick Ronson and such an amazing character. And I know that uh, Lisa Ronson did say when she was picking up her gong on behalf of her dad, mm. she said that the thing that people say to her most who knew him was not like, oh, yeah, what a great musician. Oh, what a great technician. Oh, what this, what that. They always said he was just a wonderful man. And she said Whoa. that meant so much to her, which he would. And it always comes out. Everybody who talks about Mick Ronson just says what a sweet guy he was. Yeah, Everybody. Do. So, uh, yeah, I hope we did him justice anyway. We did our best, didn't we, Bob? We did. Uh, but these are a series of letters, uh, once again taken from the book The Spider with the Platinum Hair uh, by Weird and Gilly on Independent Press. And these are just to give you a little bit of a flavour as to how Mick would communicate with the North from the South in 1966. Yeah, he'd send these back to Sandra, wouldn't he, his girlfriend at the time, and he wasn't having the best time in London, as we've mentioned. And so these are extracts from his letters to Sandra. Okay. And you also need to just put yourself in mind of the fact that, and we have mentioned this when we did Q for Queer, about how the attitude towards people in the music industry who were homosexual or bisexual it wasn't a very generous viewpoint that a lot no. of people had and, and Mick being uh, from a working class background he kind of it, it all took him by surprise a little bit so some of the terminology he uses is of its time and yes. we, we apologise for that but it, it's just reading out where Mick was coming from at that point in time Okay so we're going to begin with a letter now dated the 16th of May 1966 he writes the people I've seen up to now back in London of course are the queerest bunch I've ever seen wise guys about 40 with some glasses and chewing gum puffs and all a lot and you know I mean the thing is also that uh, coming from Hull which was a really really I come from Manchester you know I mean and uh, has its moments but Hull was a notoriously tough place to it live was, yeah. as Mick said himself about uh, the, the facts when he was carrying his violin case <laughs> around and all the other guys were looking at him with the motorbikes mm. anyway the 18th of May 1966 yesterday I gave a pro group a ring and I'm sitting here waiting for a reply the time is 12 noon and I'm by myself I'm having my hair cut in the latest style it will be the same as now but a lot shorter. <laughs> uh, now, the 20th of May, 66. Things are not going as well as I expected at the moment, but I think something will turn up soon. I even rang a group who were just starting. They have no gigs, no van, and they said they'd consider me and would write if they wanted me. I thought, of all the cheek. Anyway, I shall stay here until something does turn up. 
By the way, I'm having some fabulous meals in the morning, sausages, beans, eggs, bacon, lunch, fried rice, prawns, mushrooms, veg and all that. (laughs) (laughs) The 24th of May, 1966. Do you know it cost me around a pound a day travelling backwards and forwards to London? Do you think that's expensive? (laughs) Uh, 25th of May, a day later. I mean, these these letters are really coming thick and fast, aren't they? Do you want to hear some good news? He writes, the group I'm with live in a great big building at the West End. The group is called The Voice. There are about six floors, great big doors. The main door opens by remote control. Big posh carpets, great big settees, plants, mushroom-shaped tables and funny chairs. There's about 25 people living there and everybody's real posh. The group manager is Mickey Most. He manages the animals, Herman's Herbits, The Who, etc. The group is great. I hope everything works out okay. I don't need my amp because they provide me with equipment, such as a great big Marshall amps, twice as big and twice as powerful as mine. So I should be earning some real good cash shortly. I hope. Oh, I mean, it's, that again is very sweet and, yeah. and the optimism coming through and love the light at the end of the tunnel. So here's another one. The 1st of June, 1966. Someone has just come to take me to see a flat. This flat has one bathroom and a toilet, kitchen and cooker with pans and a living room with a bed in it, one wardrobe and a chair. It costs £3.10 a week, so that would be £1.15 a piece. It's not bad, is it? <laughs> I like that. 2nd of June now, 66. New address, he writes. 110 Gloucester Avenue, Chalk Farm, London. I'm now living at the flat. It's not too bad, really. In fact, it's very good considering it's only £4 a week. I know I said less, but the rest includes TV, refrigerator and an extra bed. I hope Dave doesn't moan and groan when he sees the place because it isn't exactly a palace. So the 3rd of June, 1966. The boys in the group want to leave for the Bahamas very shortly, but I'm not going. If the group go to the Bahamas, I should think that Dave and I will form a group of our own but if we can't we might come home Mm, uh, 4th of June at the moment I'm on the train going to Harlow to collect all my things from Dorothy's tonight we're playing at Nottingham we're playing at London Sunday night 7th of June 1966 today we received a letter from Ready Steady Go television programme saying that we will be on their programme soon the group have a lot of people writing into the programme saying we're fabulous so with that they sent us a letter on Monday we're going to the BBC TV studios for an audition also we're going to see Mickey Mouse tomorrow about being signed as one of his groups wow this is great 8th of june now this morning we were practicing hard again trying to get dave fitted in he's fitting in very well i heard jeff beck playing tonight he's great i hope i will come up to his standard one day and uh, we have to say it's not dave bowie that he's talking no. about he's his old bandmate uh, the 14th of june 1966 dave and i went down to practice at balfour place where the group lived uh, but they said they were too busy because they were getting a few things sorted out for the bahamas mm, 15th of june this morning i went down to balfour place to collect my wages tonight as there's nothing on tv i think i'll paint a picture Bless. 18th of June, 1966. We have not practised again today. <laughs> and that, that's something that cropped up, isn't it? That he was really, really keen on getting it yeah. right. All right, so move on now. A few days, in fact, to 23rd of June, 1966. Today, he writes, I arrived back at the flat in quite a good mood and then, much to my surprise, I found my guitar and Dave found his drums up in the bedroom. With that, I thought I'd better ring the group up for an explanation of why our gear was left. One of the lads at the other end said that the group had packed up sold their gear and gone off to the Bahamas. I was fuming, so I put the phone down and then decided to go down to Balfour Place and found out exactly what it was all about. When we arrived, there were only three people left in the place. They said that the group knew that they were going at the weekend and never even told me on Monday when I rang up. So now I'm deep in debt and I've got no money to live on. The group owes us our wages and we haven't got a penny, so I don't know what I'll do. Anyway, I'm not going to give up as easy as that. I shall find a group, maybe get a job and try again. And then very poignant, two days later, the 25th of June, today I saw Dave off to the station because he's going home.
28th of June now, Martin, the boy who used to live in the flat, said that the police are asking about the process, which is the uh, religious uh, group they're involved with, and the Sunday paper, The People, already got one story from some other people. So this is, the, uh, as you say, the group of people who uh, had this uh, ex-Scientologist who'd formed this religious group and, uh, and Mick had become involved with, and yeah, mm. well, in short, they'd all just scarfed, they'd done yeah, a runner, they had. by the look of it, to the Bahamas. All sounds highly illogical and unreasonable, doesn't it? And c- you can only imagine what Minnie was thinking at this point in time in, in Hull. Oh, yeah, his mum. Okay, so we're going to skip ahead now to the 22nd of August, 1966. And Mick Ronson writes, Things are bad. I'm most probably coming home in two weeks' time to settle myself down to an ordinary, simple way of life for a while. I think that's the best thing to do, don't you? That's heartbreaking, isn't it? And on the 12th of September, 1966, I'm coming home next week. That was it. And uh, again, it all unfolded, as mentioned in the podcast, that he was living on a loaf of bread a week and would ration himself. Yeah. Um, And he came back. And you look at that, he said, I want the simple life. Uh, I don't want this anymore. And what did he do? He got a job for the uh, council marking out uh, football pitches and stuff. So he probably just thought, this isn't going to work. I've just, and and I'm sick of all of the madness. You know, so one day, the highs and the lows, you've got like ready, steady, go, getting in touch. You've got Mickey Most, you know, you've got the who, all these people. People flitting about, his idols, people he wanted to be like. And then the next minute he's living on bread and then his mate goes home and then he goes home. Oh, I know. Yeah, that, that's a tragedy. But he got there, he, you know, the shining star that was Mick Ronson. We salute you, Mick. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. Recorded and edited by Howard Nock. With social media graphics by Jason Reed. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode. R is for Reed. Lou Reed. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.